I'm Eve Wiley, and this is how you sell without selling out. Roger's that. Hi, everybody. I'm Rogers Healy, and welcome to Rogers That, a podcast dedicated to selling without selling out. Today, we have really a legend in the making, someone who has taken a passion and a mission and turned it into a calling, or maybe a calling and turned it into a passion and a mission. Uh, I've met Eve Wiley a long time ago. Uh, and fun fact, Eve is uh, uh, married to another guest, Blake Wiley. So this is the first time we've had a husband and a wife on the show. So it's a, it's already a new record. But uh, Eve found out at an early age um, some stuff that most people would take and either hide or run from. And Eve turned it into um, a mission. She found a way to go and take uh, fertility fraud uh, to the next level. She's brought it to state legislation. She has found a way to go and uh, build support behind the criminalization of fertility fraud and has become a figurehead, has become a spokesperson, and has become really the voice and the face of something that I was not familiar with until she educated us. And it's become something that we love following, we love supporting. And uh, the mission today is really more than just selling without selling out. It's about telling a story that deserves to be heard. And so uh, I decided that Eve would be an incredible guest on here because what she's about to introduce to y'all, uh, whether you're watching or listening or both, uh, it's mind blowing. Uh, and your brain can go to places that you didn't think existed. And to me, that is a story worth sharing many times over. And so um, Eve uh, is a friend. She is a wife, she is a, uh, a mother, uh, she is a leader in the community, but what she's doing is way more important than anything I'm ever going to be a part of. And so I wanted to share her story with you all today. So ladies and gentlemen, Eve Wiley. Well, that was quite the introduction. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming. This, this took us a while to get there, uh, but now that we're here, uh, you know, introduce yourself to the people watching and listening um, and that kind of you know, the abridged version of how you got to this point where you really felt a calling, which, you know, most of us never get to experience. But again, you had something happen to you that most people will never realize, even if they happen, if it happened to them or not. And you took it into something and you've turned it into something special. So maybe get us to that point. Yeah. So I'll, I'll start with the shorter version of it. Um, but I did. I, I, found myself in a situation where um, I really had to make a choice and I had to find a purpose in the pain to really create this narrative therapy in order for me to heal from this. So I'm from a really small town in East Texas. It's called Center. It's um, Life Behind the Pine Curtain in East Texas. Um, 5,000 people. My parents struggled with infertility. And in the 80s, um, you went to your OB to uh, get a sperm donor, to, you know, this is when infertility was so stigmatized. And so they went to Dr. Kim McMorris and he handed them this sheet of paper and it had one line of donors. It had their physical characteristics, had their educational history and had their interest. And so my parents went through, you know, 30 something donors on this list and they picked donor 106 and they circled it and they wrote this one. And that's what they used. That is what is documented in my mom's medical records. And after several attempts of artificial insemination by an anonymous sperm donor, um, they conceived me. So I was born, and then much to their surprise, four months later, they were naturally pregnant again with my little sister. So I also have a little sister who's four months, or 14 months younger than I am. So at the time, and this was standard thinking at the time, 
um, within donor conception. And to be clear, donor conception is when you're using a um, a donor for gametes. So that could be egg donor. A that donor could be for what? Donor gametes. So that could be... Gametes? Yes, like donor reproductive material. Got it. So that could be egg donor. That could be a um, sperm donor. So that's what I mean by donor conception. And then the offspring from donor conception would be a donor conceived person. So there's a lot of uh, vocabulary that has to go into telling the story. Yeah. Because uh, the language is, you're like, wait, what's that? Um, so did, did, so you, did you know that like growing up, was it something that was discovered, that you discovered it at a later age, you did not... Mm-hmm realize that, you know, the, you know, your father is obviously always your father, but he wasn't your birth father. Right. He wasn't my biological father. And no, I didn't know because at the time the thinking was your genetic identity is not important. We know better now that genetic identity is important. Um, but the thinking at the time was like, just don't tell him. They don't need to know mom is mom. And there's no way to determine if it was donor sperm because a lot of them would mix the sperm. And so they would say, well, the donor sperm is kind of like, you know, um, kicking the other sperm in the butt. So really it's going to be the dad's sperm. You know, cognitive dissonance is an amazing thing, by the way, to uh, to really, you know, you believe what you want to believe. So they didn't tell me. But at the same time, my my dad, Doug, who my mom was married to, he was really sick. And so he had cardiomyopathy, which is a heart disease. And he passed away when I was seven. And he's the biological father of my little sister, Joanna. And my mom is a nurse. And at that moment, she knew that my little sister would have to get heart echoes and medically would have to prepare for things for her life. And she was wondering, well, what does Eve need to know? Because she knew I looked nothing like anyone in my family. I was this little blonde hair, blue eyed girl. My little sister had olive colored skin, dark brown hair, dark brown eyes. I mean, we were 14 months apart. We looked nothing alike. So, so she knew that I was. Did you realize the donor. this when you were younger or was it? No, it wasn't until I was 16. My mom, from that moment on, she contacted the California Cryobank and she was trying to get information. The what? California what? Cryobank. Cryobank. So that's where the sperm donor came from. But you were like, but it was the headquarters or the doctor's office was in Texas. Mm-hmm. So they were shipping the sperm because you can ship sperm all over. My they would put sperm in these uh, nitrogen tanks and then ship them to the doctors. And that's mm-hmm. what they used. And they would keep them in a freezer. So you're 16 years old and you spend the first six, the first you know, eight years of your, or whatever, 15 years of your life where you mm-hmm. have Joanna and there wasn't any party. It was like, oh, we don't look alike, but we're still sisters. And then at 16, what happened? What was the moment? So I never felt that genetic mirroring within my family to where I didn't see myself in my family. Um, My mom spent those years getting as much information on Yahoo messenger boards, talking to donor conceived people, um, talking to single mothers by choice group, talking to recipient parents. And she was collecting all this info to help me find my donor. When I was 16, I was going through her emails and she's, she was our school nurse. And so I thought that I was going to get some juicy gossip on someone in my cohort. And I kept reading these things about donor conception. Well, I'm from East Texas. I was like, well, maybe my mom is doing something with my grandfather's cattle. But I clicked on them and one of them said, my daughter doesn't know. And her birth date is 0728 of 87, my birthday. So then it was like everything made sense, right? I actually felt relieved because... I had thought that maybe I was adopted 
and no one told me, or maybe I was the product of an affair and no one told me because there was just this thought unknown. I always knew there was a family secret. I just didn't know that I was that family secret. And so that's how I I found this out. But then also the other part of me was excited because I was like, I have a dad. And there was just this Disney princess um, You're 16. Feeling 16. Yes. You know, very naive. I had no idea of the unintentional consequences of, um, I never thought that, that the donor would reject me. You know, all those things that, that you hear about happening. Number 106. Number 106. Because in my mind, in my Disney princess mind, this was just totally going to work out. And? And it and, did. And, <laughs> well, but I'm saying, again, like you're 16 years old, which whether mm-hmm. you're 106 or you're 16, that's a really, I mean, that's obviously a life-altering moment. I'm sure you remember where you were, what you were wearing, what was, you know, what oh, absolutely. music was playing, et cetera. So what was the first reaction at that point? Did you go and share this news that you discovered with your family? Did you hold it to yourself or did you immediately go into mission mode of tracking down number 106, which obviously led to a different kind of platform? What was the processing there? All of it. Um, it was really late at night when I uncovered this. And then I waited until the next morning and I woke up, heard my mom. She was in the bathroom in the shower and I just burst in there. I was like, mom, I know Doug's not my dad. And she just turned and she just started bawling. And, and it was a, you know, for me, I was more curious and looking into the future of who this person was than to really contemplate about the secrecy about my conception. Um, but I was also 16, you know, I wasn't really thinking about, um, you know, my identity, I was just coming into my identity. Right. And had just a really optimistic view of this. And so we talked through it and then she was like, I was going to tell you when you're 18, I couldn't tell you when you were seven, because how do you have that conversation? Well, that's not your real dad that died because we used a donor and this doctor helped us. And, you know, it was just hard. And then you have that compacted trauma of, of, of losing a father. And then, but then trying to be hopeful that like your biological father's still out there. It was just a lot for her. And then her grief as a single mother, I completely understood where she was coming from on it. And she had all of this, you know, this huge folder that, that was proof to me that she was collecting this over the years. She was going to tell me. Now, at the time, the protocol for California Cryobank was you had to wait until you were 18 years old, and then you could submit your mother's medical records, proving that they used a donor um, from California Cryobank. They cross-checked that with purchasing records from the doctor. And so purchasing, I... Like to where they purchase on your behalf mm-hmm. or on the mom's behalf, on the whatever, the mom or dad's behalf to get the sperm. Right. And so a lot of these doctors, because especially in rural America, um, shipping was really expensive. And so they would buy a bunch of different vials from different donors from California Cryobank or Zytec, Fairfax. And then they would keep those on hand. And then that's what they would use in their donor programs. And then if they ran out, then they would just get a new shipment, but it saved on shipping costs for doctors and for patients. So I went to Dr. McMorris. I got my mom's medical records. And what, then what city? was this in center? This is in Nacogdoches. Gotcha. And so Nacogdoches is 30 miles from yeah. center. Um, that's kind of like the closest city, city for, yeah, yeah. for all, for that part of rural America. Um, so I submitted all of that when I turned 18 and they spent about a year trying to track down donor 106 and, and they did, they found him. And what they were doing is they were sending medical, like blank medical records, asking well, him to update time out. So like if you're donor 106 and they go to the sperm bank to donate specimen, 
So is there a box on there that just says, I will, uh, I will allow my future child to track me down? I mean, what's, what's that? No, it all changes because he was supposed to be an anonymous donor. The agreement that they were trying to do is just to get me updated medical records. Because you have to think, 1979 is when the first uh, sperm bank was created officially. And so they had roughly five years of protocols in place and they're trying to figure out how to do this. And then as the years went on, as their clients had kids, some of those kids may have had health issues. And then you also have to keep in mind that when you go in as a sperm donor, everything is self-reported. And and that's how it was in the eighties. And then we're in the middle of an AIDS epidemic. So now we have a $30 billion industry that is completely unregulated. We have a AIDS epidemic. And for the first time, the government was saying, you have to quarantine sperm for six months. And so they were operating under fresh samples and now they're operating under frozen samples. And so there's just a lot of change going on in this industry. Commercial DNA testing wasn't around. So there was no way to prove or You're to talking really about when you find started this or back in the eight, early 80s. Back in the 80s. And so in the 80s they're just trying to figure out what their protocols were. So 18 years later when I come, they've changed their protocols a lot because a lot of the donor conceived people, we want our medical information. Like that's not a lot to ask for. And And so they found him and he updated his medical records. And he basically asked them, like when they found it, was it something where they alerted you and they're like, oh my gosh, after a year, we've tracked down 106. Mm -hmm. You remember where you were when you found that out? I was, I was in Maine. How old were you? I was 19. I was getting ready to go to Austin um, to start my sophomore year in college at UT. And they just call you? They called me. And I mean, to be clear, I was bugging the hell out of them. Yeah. You know, hey, any updates? So I felt like we had a very um, close relationship with the receptionist and from talking to her all the time. But I also had a letter that I wanted them the to pass on to California? him. Mm-hmm, to California Crab Bank. So you, you directly could go to the source versus the doctor's office in Nacogdoches. Right. So that's where all the medical records went because California Cryobank was the one that was updating the records for Holy me. Crap. And I had a letter. I was like, I, I want you to send this letter to him if you ever find him. And they did. And he responded and he, we went to email. So he would respond to California Cryobank. California Cryobank would forward it to me. I would respond to them. They would forward it Where to one of six. directly connect. Well, and then we started directly connecting after that. And I think it's just, you know, he is such an amazing, wonderful person. He immediately flew down. Um, I probably was in Austin just a few weeks. So within like two months of connecting, he flew to Austin to meet me for the first time. And I mean, he's just awesome. Yeah. 106. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's supposed to see, I look at him, I'm like, and I look at his kids and I see that for the first time in my life, that genetic mirroring, I saw the similarities because, you know, so many times I would go and look in front of a mirror and just try and tease apart, you, you know, what's my mom, what's my dad. And then to just see so much in the mirror that made me feel uncomfortable because I didn't know where that came from because I don't look like anyone in my family. And so just to have that was so settling and to have as stories of my ancestors and, you know, all that information, all the questions that a lot of people take for granted to have that genetic identity was so meaningful to me. And, and that's what I found in him. That trip in Austin, um, I started calling him dad and we would talk every day. I mean, it was just this beautiful fairy tale relationship. 
And, and that's been our relationship for 15 years. Oh my gosh. But like most fairy tales, there is a dark, twisted part of it. So this is where we take the turn. This and, is where and, the turn and, happens. And the, so you're 19 years old. You meet 106, whether we want to say his first name. Are we allowed to say his first name? Yes, Steve. So you meet Steve. Dad. And you meet Dad. Mm-hmm. And it becomes a full circle moment where, you know, the journey ended in a, in a great way. You tracked him down, your persistence and your strategy finally all, all played out and everything just kind of made sense. Mm-hmm. And then what? So then let's see. So this, you're, you're a sophomore in it. college. Sophomore in college. Okay. And, and, and that was just it. I graduate, I get married. Um, he officiated our wedding. No way. His, my half siblings were there, his social kids, social kids, meaning the ones that he reared with his wife his acknowledged kids. This all, did you knew, did you know this vernacular before you went down this journey? I mean, like all the terms that you're using, is that? No, I had to learn all of this along the way. So you call it his social kids. Right. That, that he reared with his wife. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you know his wife as well? You know her? Yes, she came as well. Oh she my was gosh. at the wedding. And funny part about the wedding, I thought, so our wedding was super emotional. And I thought it was because Blake's dad was walking me down the aisle and my dad, uh, the sperm donor, Steve, he was officiating the wedding and, um, and everybody was crying except for me. I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is such, you know, a special moment. Well, I later found out that the bartenders got confused and it was a deep eddy, like lemonade vodka and they thought it was a mixer. So they were putting vodka on top of oh vodka. Oh my God. So they were all just really drunk. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. So literally everyone at my wedding just run it for me. I mean, I literally was like, this is so special. I didn't know everyone was hammered. Oh my gosh. So anyway, it was still special. I'm just going to go with it on the other side. Yeah. Um, but yeah. And then holidays, he would come and spend holidays. Um, for when how, we had so kids. So this went on for what, 10 years? 15, yeah, well, 15 years this year. But, but but when the turn happened, when you actually... The turn happened was five years ago. Okay. So I was 30. So I, Blake and I had our first child, Hutton, and um, he started presenting with these medical mysteries that no one in Dallas on his team of doctors could figure out. And it was really bizarre. So we were actually in Austin at an event with Dell Children's Hospital. And this person was like, hey, there's this guy when we can't figure things out this is who figures it out. I mean, you could have told me to go stand out naked in the rain upside down and I would have whatever to, I mean, it's your kid. So we're in Austin and I end up calling this doctor. He's like a nutritionist, genetics, works from genetic expression, whatever it is that he does. So he says, I need raw data on you and your husband. Because you couldn't figure out Hutton's diagnosis. No one could figure out. I mean, the kid was throwing up every hour and a half. He had had multiple surgeries for something called reoccurring pyloric stenosis. So we were thinking it was an absorption issue, but we weren't getting a lot of help or support here. So we did 23andMe plus health, all three of us. And that was the easiest way for him to collect raw genetic data. And he came back with it and he said, Eve, he has celiac disease. And I was like, what is celiac disease? And so he walked me through everything with an autoimmune disorder and what it is. And he told me that it's likely hereditary because I was a carrier for it. And so for For celiac celiac. disease, and I was like, no one in my family and my mom or my dad, no one has ever talked about celiac disease. So I call everybody. I ask the questions. I do my due diligence. No one's reporting any gut issues at all. So are you familiar with 23 and me plus health? So 
for those of you who are not commercial DNA testing, there's also 23MS plus health has the um, ancestry side, but it also has the health side. And so I was working on just the health side. And I always knew that I would have half siblings that were my donor conceived siblings. I always knew that. But I was told by California Cryobank that I was one of the oldest ones. So I wasn't really looking for half siblings at that point. So I get on the ancestry side and I'm looking and everything is saying close family, like close relatives. And the way that it, it, it determines how you're related to someone is through something called cinnamorgans. And those cinnamorgans are the degree in which you're related to them. And so it's not a perfect science because you can have 1800 cinnamorgans and that can be a half sibling. It could be a grandparent. Did you know what a cinnamorgan was? Had no clue. I was calling it a cinogram, honestly. I was like, I was like, what this is. Um, I mean, this is all so new. And, and then at one point, one said first cousin. So then I thought maybe I found another family secret. Maybe one of my uncles had like a love child or something. But then the more research I started to do, I realized that those were my half siblings. So I called dad and I was like, Hey, there's more of us. But I also recognized that my relationship with dad, donor 106, was very unique and special in, in the sense that, that we did have a father-daughter relationship. I didn't have a recipient parent because my father died to be protective of. And that's what I see a lot of are people, they don't necessarily want that connection with their biological father because they're worried how that will impact their relationship with the father that reared them, Right. I didn't have that. So I told him, I was like, can you do 23andMe plus health? You guys will have a platform and then y'all figure out what your relationship is. I didn't want to be the middleman. So that's kind of how that part started. I reached out to the half siblings. One was 13 years older than me. How did you find them? Oh, Facebook. Seriously? Instagram. Actually, LinkedIn is the best. <laughs> My God. And Google. I mean, it's pretty, when it shows you like where they are and you have a picture it was, it was very easy to find them. Was it a phone call or a message that you sent? Oh, I just, I mean, just dropped the bomb through a message. And you can message in the platform, how many, too. How many half-siblings were there? So at the time, there were three on there. And you just hope that they read the message and don't think that you're spamming them or something. Exactly, and a lot of them do. They think it's a, they think it's a joke. So I, I mean, my message is very... Hey, I'm Eve, you I'm your sister. Basically, because yeah. how else do you have this conversation? Because one, I don't know if they know that they're donor conceived because most people don't know that they're donor conceived. In fact, 10 to 15% of the people who take commercial DNA testing will find out that they are not biologically related to one of their parents. It's called an NPE, which is a non-parent expected result. And so there are all of these affinity groups that I have found myself in and that's one of them. Donor person. I mean, are you person. considered the godmother of all this? But I'm saying the one or the, the queen god. I don't know. Whatever. I'm saying you're the figurehead of this, and, and I'm a pretty in, in tune guy that is. I think I know enough about enough to be relatively dangerous. But I can't think of anyone else that has taken this on. Where again, at a younger age, you realize there was a responsibility that you had to go and assume. Where most people, again they would run from it, but you, you took it under your wing and it's become something that is way bigger than yourself. But again, you're, how old are you? And you message these people that were 30, you're 30. 30. And it's really, really, really young. Not that you're that much older than 30. Right. And then probably at this time, the precipice was you had a platform, 
right? And it wasn't just because 106 turned into Steve, turned into dad, and then all these things started to happen. But at that moment, did you have a light bulb? You're like, okay, I'm a, you're the voice. You're the voice of this, you know, problem, right? right. Th this thing that's kind of been hidden. But then from there, where did you go? You messaged the half-siblings. You have three of them. Three of them. One of them says 13 years older. That's weird. I'm like, that's... One of them is 13, 13 years, years older. older. I was like, wait, I'm the oldest one, but whatever. This is so cool. I have a half-brother. I was excited. Um, have you met them? I haven't met that one. That's a whole other story. His wife... He doesn't want to be a part of this. Totally fair, understand. Fair. You know, so then I uh, message the second one. He's from East Texas. It's like, okay, that's kind of fine. And then the third one I couldn't get a hold of. And then I finally messaged him on LinkedIn. And so he's like, I'll give you a call tomorrow. It was late at night. Um, I was actually, we were, how the hell could someone sleep after getting that message? I know. I well, that, that first one I was like, Hey, are you the Adam that, is on 23andMe, can you log in and look? And then my next message was like, okay, yeah, that's cool. Call me tomorrow. I just think I'm your half-sibling. Well, then my phone immediately rings. And he's like, okay, you have my attention. Because um, he was like, kind of hard to explain to my wife I'm getting out of bed to go call another woman. It's like, all right, that's yeah. fair. It's like, but yeah, but we need to talk. So I thought that I was telling him... Um, you're donor conceived. You're my half sibling because that's what it looked like. Close family to first cousins. And he's like, no way. I'm like, oh, this is what they all say. Okay. I'll humor you. So we go, we look at our matches again. And I was like, okay, well, let's pretend like we're first cousins. That means that your uncles, one of them is my biological father is one of your uncles, Steve. And he's like, no, but I do actually have an uncle who's from your area. And his name is Kim McMorris. My world stopped. Kim McMorris, my mother's fertility doctor. Whoa. The literal hero in their story, the man that delivered me. And in that moment, I knew exactly what it meant. And so did he. Because the only way that he was my first cousin is that Steve was not my biological father. It was that my mom's fertility doctor inseminated his own sperm inside of her without her knowledge or consent. And it, I mean, I, I was shocked. And then I was right back to being that 16 year old girl again of uncovering something so huge and life altering, but also I'm 30 years old, starting over for the third time in my life. Who the hell am I? And now it's impacted my child. And so it, I, there was just a lot to tease apart. And I did exactly what I did when I was 16. We got off the phone. It was a little uncomfortable after that because he was wondering, and he is protective of his family, you know, what am I going to do with this information? And I was like, I don't know. I really just need to process this. And I remember sitting there downstairs in the kitchen thinking like, I got to make a choice. Like I, I have to choose something. It is, it's hard for me to go upstairs and tell my mom that she has been medically assaulted, medically raped. Um, my existence is going to hurt so many people and there's so much deception around my conception. It was a lot, but I had to choose. I had to choose to do nothing. I had to choose to maybe just tell my mom. I had to choose to tell everyone. Um, I had, I had to choose to confront the doctor. I had to make a lot of choices. All of those choices were hard. And I sat there thinking I've got to choose my heart. And that's what I did. I chose my heart. I went upstairs. I told my mother what happened. I've never seen someone in real shock before she was shaking. I mean, I've, I've heard this story and I'm actually still, it's just, no, I mean, it's, it's yeah. 
I mean, there's, again, like the life moments you've had up until 30 years old, no one ever really experiences anything like that in their entire lifetime. And again, you, you start over for the third time third in your third decade when you discover news that, yeah. And again, you had the fairy tale come, tr- come true with Steve and mm-hmm. 106, and now it's a, holy crap, it's all different than I expected. And I knew that this time there wasn't going to be a happy ending because of the deception around my conception. And so that, and that, that was really hard to process, right? How do you move forward? How do you heal from this? I mean, it, there was so much to really tease apart. And then I felt so incredibly lonely because at the time I didn't know the scope of this problem. There was only one other case after Googling forever. Um, and it was actually the Dr. Klein. They did a Netflix documentary over him. Um, but I didn't have anyone to reach out to. There, there wasn't a podcast. There wasn't a blog. There wasn't a book. There wasn't anything in the scope of fertility fraud. And so we, we called attorneys and they came back. You know, I think what was even more shocking about finding out that I'm the product of fertility fraud is, is the fact that... Was that term even around? No. That was something that I just started using because it was fertility related, but it was fraudulent. It wasn't fertility negligence because the doctor knowingly did this. And so it it was all just new again. (laughs) And so the most shocking part was that this is not a crime in Texas. It was not a crime anywhere in the U S California had a law that like maybe it could work with, but like not really. And, um, not even the medical board would be able to take action against him. Had it, had it been documented before? No, the only, my only path forward, uh, for any type of accountability would be to sign a non-disclosure agreement. And then the doctor who is still practicing, who is still practicing now, now he still has his license. He's still practicing, can keep his reputation intact and continue to practice and potentially continue to victimize other people. People didn't know that they were victimized by this. And so that was another choice. And then for the third time again, I'm still reaping the consequences of something that I didn't do. These are burdens that really aren't mine to bear. And that was really hard to process too. So there, there was a lot mentally, you know, to really get around all of this, but I knew that there was a purpose in the pain. And for me, that purpose was to change law. And that's what I did. Um, I mean, there's a million things that I want to ask, and I don't even feel like it's fair to you to work. Like, I should say, what did you do next? I can probably imagine <laughs> what you did next. You, you probably didn't take a, a breath, and you probably confronted Kim. I did. You knew exactly what I did. Yeah. Yes. No, I, actually, I, I don't I, I don't remember this part of it. I'm just like, obviously, if, if you're trailing along, it's like there's no part of you that probably had the waiting Gene, it's like, all right, next up, you know, you've got an army on your side now. You have half siblings, you have Steve, you have Blake, you have your family. All this because the, you know, the the purpose and the pain of Hutton mm-hmm. of him finding out he was celiac was to get to this part of the journey, which again, most people would just say, Screw it, I'm out, I'm gonna focus on my my own family, I'm gonna I'm gonna pivot, but that's not your that's not your makeup. I shouldn't so, do that. So what happened next? So what happened next was I went on 2020, you know, I, I don't have this connection to East Texas anymore. And, and again, I had another choice. I had all this medical information that significantly impacted my child's life and his care. And I was thinking, what about my other half siblings? 
you know, the, the ones that don't even know that this is their story, they need their medical information. And so I confronted Kim and I gave him the benefit in of the person? doubt. No, through letters. My attorneys were like, you need everything in writing. It's just fair. Yeah, I, I wanted, I wanted to sit down with them, but they were like, no, you can't do that. It'd been awkward, but, um, I did. And he lied over and over and over again. And so he really showed me who he was and, and he was giving me these marginalizing things of like, you should just be grateful to be alive. And he was doing the Lord's work and, you know, all of these things. And I'm like, I'm so not talking about being grateful to be alive. You saying he admitted it? Oh, he did admit it. He told me that it appears that I may have inherited some of his genes. How is it not illegal? How is that something that, I mean, if it's not illegal, it's legal. How, how is that right. not something that you, your mind is just blown that mm-hmm. we live in a, in a world where, and it, it is, it's, it's rape. It it's, is. It's, it's literal rape. And you have to think of it this way because, you know, sometimes people are like, well, it's not, but it is. And our moms feel that way. This is the eighties. We know that sperm can live outside of the body for roughly 30 ish minutes. So you have these women coming from a 90 mile radius into his office. He's not going to risk them getting a flat tire and being late. Right? So they come into the office, they get up in the stirrups. He preps the cervix, which means digital penetration with his fingers. He goes into the next room. He masturbates to procure the sample and under a state of arousal immediately goes and deposits his sperm into his patients. Again, digital penetration. The lines are blurred between that patient-doctor relationship, but also in the state of arousal. That, that, you're in a position of power as a doctor, and, and there's not informed consent. There's informed consent for the reproductive procedure, but not for the reproductive material, which is why tightening up informed consent is so important. Now, I discovered this 30 years later, which is part of my mission, is yeah. to really, you know tighten that up. But also you have a statute of limitations issues. Most statute of limitations are two years within the medical realm or seven years Which, uh, with for, no discovery. For all y'all that are Googling, that just means you essentially have two <laughs> years or seven years to get caught. Right. And if you don't get caught, you're off, you're off scot-free. And then in Texas, we have a 10 year statute of repose. So any claim that I were to bring against him or the medical board, I would not be able to get around the Texas medical board liability act or a 10-year statute of repose. I've learned a lot of big words Yeah, because I'm not an attorney. <laughs> not yet, Aaron Brockovich. But, yeah, right. So, so yeah, so that's, at that point, when the attorneys said that, I mean, can you imagine? Like, that is just, that's heartbreaking. And, and my mom. But again, it's not like you just said, okay, that's the law, right. on to the next soccer game. Hell no, you went and did what? Changed it. <laughs> 11 times. <laughs> Literally. So again, yes. here, here you are with an even bigger platform where you've already helped, you know, a lot of people, but it became a different kind of mission. And it did. And I wanted accountability in the fertility industry. Most people don't know that the fertility industry is less regulated than our nail salons. And that is shocking. It's a $30 billion industry. We are creating humans and our agriculture, our cattle breeding, all of that is way more documented and way more regulated than when we are creating humans. In fact, the FDA stops regulating at the lab level. And what that means is when the reproductive material leaves a lab, an embryologist, and goes to a clinic or doctor, the doctor decides how to handle the reproductive material. So it's not like when you're in the hospital getting medicine and you have, you know, beep, beep, all the wristbands, 
You can have that, but the doctor puts that in place. The clinic puts it in place. If they want to use a pencil to label stuff, they totally can because that responsibility is on the clinic. How long did it take you to figure all this out? Um, Not very long. An hour. Yeah, a little bit. But I, so back to the legislation, I wanted to really, um, I wanted to take on a little bit of the industry because I'm only one person. I, I don't, I can't make a ton of changes in that industry, but I can make a lot of waves and I can shine light in all the dark corners because people need to know they're not protected. They need to know what questions to ask with doctors. So there is a big part of that, that, that I, I work on. The other part was, is I was like, well, I'm just going to go make it illegal. Y'all, I had no idea what I was doing. I was more concerned about my top 10 friends in MySpace during government class than actually listening. But I went to Austin and I met with legislators and I did not have a solution, but I had a story. And I told them my story and I sat and I cried in those offices. I went once a week for almost three months. We were in session. We were 20 something days into session and it was representative Stephanie Click out of Fort Worth. Amazing. And Senator Joan Huffman in Houston. Also amazing. She's a former prosecutor. They listened to my story. They drafted language to make it a sexual assault. And to this day, Texas is the only state that considers this a sexual assault. Which, uh, for all you that are probably wondering, that's not where we stop the story. You don't go and say, okay, we've got to win in Texas because there's 49 other states. And then there's also the rest of the world. So get us to 2019. 2019. Um, I was told there's no way this is going to pass. We're too far into session. Let's just get something done and we'll work on it in two years because Texas meets every two years for session. Um, I worked that bill with a lobbyist so hard. I spoke, I testified, um, did as much media as I could to get more attention on this. And it passed a day before session ended. And I will tell you, is it called something? (laughs) It's just a fertility fraud bill. Okay. Yeah. The one of six bill or something. I wanted it to be the Dr. Kim McMorris bill, but they were like, maybe that's not a good look. Fair. I wanted to keep his name out there. Yeah. Um, but the interesting thing is, is I, I started collecting stories of, it was like this me too movement of women. They're like, this happened to me too. And, um, and that was very empowering for me because I was like, this is what I need to get through. This is like the, you know, this is the reason why they can't come forward because they signed a non-disclosure. They can't come forward because they don't feel like they can share this with the world because it's not easy to share something like this. So intimate and to just have your entire life kind of played out, you know, your, your biggest trauma played out and for people to come and have marginalizing things like, and I would hear this all the time, but you wouldn't be here if it weren't for him. Or um, at least you have doctor's genes, you know, people who are trying to deflect. Yes. And their own, you know, feelings of, of being uncomfortable. And so that, that was hard, but I had, you know, thick skin. But the best part, and I really think the reason why this passed so quickly is there was representative um, Travis Clardy, who is my biological father's representative, who I've known my entire life. I went to him and I was like, Travis, this is just a courtesy. I know you probably know why I'm here. You've talked to Kim. And in that meeting, he was like, oh, I've heard the story and it sounds like their consent and it looks like it worked out well for you. I mean, I was just like frozen. Like I could not believe that one of our representatives, someone who I've known was so, I mean, it was just disgusting. So my lobbyist, they got into an argument and then it was just, he was like, this is not going to pass. I'm not going to allow it. And it was again, more of that fire. I was like, you know what, Travis, watch me. 
And so we walked out of there. He ran to Stephanie Click and was like, kill this bill. And she's like, you know, it's wrong. Well, then every meeting I had to take, they asked one question. Who's your opposition? The only opposition I had was Travis Clardy. Do you know how many women that pissed off? Mm -mm. I had 30 something authors by the end of it. So it passed really quickly. So I'm forever grateful to Travis, actually. (laughs) Thank you, Representative Clardy. (laughs) Oh, my God. Mm. So it didn't stop there. (laughs) (laughs) Energizer Bunny keeps going and going, 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 going. I told her we we weren't filming this. I was like, look, I feel like for the first time, I'm not speechless, but it's not even fair to ask you a question because it would interrupt, you know, just this is, yeah, please. (laughs) So from there, again, it was those me too. I can can literally just leave the room. Yeah, Eve that. Eve that is what this is. Um, So from there, it was, like I said, it's the me too stories and, um, You know, people, for me, it was very important. I wanted to be that person I did not have. And I didn't have someone to ask questions. And and so now I say, you have options. You can settle with a non-disclosure agreement. Money will never make this right. But for some people, that's a large sum of money that will change your life. And you don't have to go through all the legal, um, just trying to figure out a legal pathway is hard. That could take years and years. You can come forward um, or we can change legislation. And so then I just started down this path of, of supporting other people like me in different states. And so we would get a story and I would build out a legislative plan and we would start calling offices and I would start calling committee members and this person would use their story and then we would activate the media and then we would all testify and go back to our community and pull more. And then over the last four or five years, I've identified over 70 doctors who have done this. And so we just went across the country and across, across the world. And so I've just collected this, you know, so many of these stories that, that go into fertility negligence as well. Um, but in four short years, we went from one bill to now we have 11 and we have a federal fertility fraud bill that's been filed. And these are bipartisan bills. They are very narrowly tailored to just address fertility fraud. And then I had to go back but they're not retroactive. That's the unsatisfying part of it. And retroactive meaning the doctors can't be prosecuted for doing it in the eighties, but they can be prosecuted if they did it from the year the bill was passed. So for my, for my personal Which story, is so jacked up, I know, but That's, it's just one of those things. We just don't have laws around it, but we do. We're about to, yes, we're, we're getting there, but we need a lot more laws and penal codes for, you know, reproductive negligence. I mean, all of it. Oh my God. So, um, With mine, we also filed a medical board complaint with the state of Texas for Dr. McMorris. And um, it took a long time. At first, they said that this didn't fall below the standard level of care. Don't even get me started on that. And then um, they came back and then they reopened the case. And what ultimately ended up happening is Dr. McMorris filed a lawsuit and a restraining order against the medical board. So they couldn't even issue him, you know, revoking his license. They voted to take his license. But the lawsuit says that he is saying that you can't take my license because of a seven year statute of limitations for standard level of care. The board is saying we can take your license under unethical conduct and behavior, which does not carry a statute of limitations. That has been in the court system for the courts to decide. They're not even arguing the details of the case. 
They've been asked, he's asked that, that they don't even consider that. He lost his first one. He appealed it. So now it's just going to go all the way up and it'll get kicked back down. He's just buying time at this point. Oh my God. So then from there, that really pissed me off to you. So I was like, all right, you play checkers. I'm going to play chess. But so, wait, there's more. But wait, there's more. I'm like an info commercial, right? No, listen, yeah. <laughs> so there is more. <laughs> so then I went back to Joan Huffman and Stephanie Click, the representative and the senator, and we put in a discovery rule for the medical board. So now any of my half siblings have two years to file a claim with the medical board with McMorries against McMorries, and then they can take his license. And so that goes around statute of limitations as when, well. When is, so when is this? When will this? It's two thousand. It's February twenty three right now. So when when is best case scenario this will actually play out? Whenever I have a new half sibling pop up. So if you're in East Texas, test. Oh my God. I mean, it's yeah. There's so many. There's. What's the name of the movie that, about you? What's it going to be called? <laughs> Who's going to play you in the movie? That's that's the first oh, question. Um. Think about Blake Lively. We kind of look like. Okay. Well, bit. Blake Lively. Blake Lively. Pay, play, what if you find out you're related to Blake Lively? Oh my God, it could be. What if I am? And then I could finally meet Ryan Reynolds. There we go. Yeah. What's your movie oh. called? What's the movie about you called? Mm. You know, I never thought about that. Okay. We'll come back to it. I mean, there, again, it's, it's, I, I feel terrible asking you these cliche questions, but I feel like it's still valid. Yeah. No, totally ask them. What's the best advice you've ever <laughs> received? I mean, I don't even feel like it's fair to give you advice. I feel like you just need to have a book of, of evisms, but... Have you ever been given advice that gave you any kind of pivotal experience? Uh, yes. What? Don't fry bacon naked. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Um, it's pretty sound advice. Don't fry bacon naked. What's the best advice you would give someone? Maybe it's that, but maybe it's not. <laughs> don't fry bacon No. Um, so th the real advice was, I'll never forget this, Kira Phillips, who was the anchor for my 2020 segment. And I was... Subtle 2020 drop. Subtle 2020 Roger's that. Eh, 2020. Um, and, and I was in this kind of moment of like, am I doing the right thing? I just... I, I'm... I, like, who am I? Like, what am I doing? Is this just going to be like a sideshow, like a Jerry Springer Maury story and then nothing happens? You know, what, what do I do? And she looked at me and she said, Eve, never underestimate the power of a story. And... And, and we've revisited that. And not that that was a really advice, but it was pivotal for me because at that moment, that time is exactly what I needed to hear. And so now that's what I tell people who reach out to me when they think that they can't make a difference. And I say, you can and never underestimate the power of a story or your story. Wow. Is this the part that I tell you that I've been on Jerry Springer? <gasps> So collectively, what? 2020 and Jerry Springer, oh and not God. just that, I was on with my mom. We're official side shows. That's, that's <laughs> it, yeah. Um, and that's something that a Stop. secret that I just opened up Pandora's box. But yeah, I was on Jerry Springer as a guest, and then this is when I was trying to be famous and found my way oh in my a uh, heated conversation with one of the panelists. Um, but um, anyway, I've been wanting to tell it to somebody for such a long time. Okay, now I have questions. Yeah. Were you like a guest or were you sitting no, in no, the no. audience? I was there. I was. I went to Chicago to surprise my parents and we were going to go see Oprah and it was sold out. <laughs> and I said, well, Jerry Springer is filmed here as well. And we went there and 
anyway, that's better for another day. But I finally found a way to be like, we, we have a something in common. <laughs> you said Jerry Springer, I've been on it. Uh, so with, with all this journey that you, with these journeys that you've been on that again, you're still, you're in decade three, which means you've got a lot of impact left to make that I'm you are not finished yet. No, no. I mean like, and again, you, you literally aren't finished yet, even with just stuff that you shared with us. How do we support you? Like, how do we support Eve Wiley for one, but then how do we support the cause? And how do we go and make sure people like Dr. I don't even want to call him just McMorris. How do we go and help shut these kind of people down? That's a great question. So right now with this federal bill, we're trying to get it on the Judiciary Committee. And what I've been asking people to do, you can go and follow me on Instagram. That's where I post What's all of my Instagram stuff. Name? And that's Eve A. Wiley. So E-V-E-A-W-I-L-E-Y. And I have templates. And what I do is I say, hey, this is an email address for this person in Congress, email them. And what we're trying to do is just get more eyes on this, more awareness. And that's honestly, people are so instrumental and so important. I get so many meetings from constituents reaching out to their members of Congress and see seeing me on an email. And then we have a Zoom call and then I wake up the next morning and they've signed on as a co-sponsor. So it's so important. You can absolutely make a difference because there are so many people that have, and I can't do what I do with, without people who can send that email and, and help me get that level of attention on it. And let's say somebody's listening, they're watching or listening today, and they have a story similar to yours. What's mm -hmm. the most appropriate way to reach out to you? Instagram. Instagram. Mm -hmm. Or LinkedIn or Facebook. And, if, and, and, if, and by the way, if you even think it in your head, she's going to find you. Yeah. Like Eve is a, a bloodhound meets an investigative reporter meets um, Blake Lively, which we just discovered. Um, this was... Uh, I, this was a lot of things. This was incredible. This was eye-opening. And again, the first time that Abby and I heard this story, we were at dinner and I thought I knew Eve and I did, but I was just <laughs> like, what? What? And again, the ignorance of me not really taking a deep dive into the friendship and, you know, I, 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 I knew enough, but I didn't. But there's so many gotchas and it's just so many moments you're like, how is that not illegal? How is this person not in jail? How are they still practicing? And I think that collectively, you know, we can go and actually make a real difference. And in our lifetime... You know, you're going to, one of the questions you normally ask people, it, it, you look back in 70 years, right? And other than your family and the stuff that means most, what, what would you be most proud of? And that's not even fair to ask you because what you've done is you've given people a platform for finding their own version of this and it's a calling and you've taken it and you've squeezed out every single ounce of life out of this opportunity, which has created other opportunities. Um, so yeah, this was... Um, uh, thank you. I, I, I think it's just, it's, it's amazing to share your story. And the goal with this is that many people hear it and uh, jump onto your calling as well. So um, what does the next five years look like? <laughs> That's the last question. Cause I, I don't want it to end, but we're approaching an hour and yeah. what, what does the next five years look like? And then we wrap and then we wrap it. Well, hopefully the next five years, there is a book. So people who find themselves in I've got a book friend. I, I've got, got a book. A I've got, a, I've got Jan Miller. Jan, Sh shout yes. out to Jan Miller. She's awesome. She's, less she's, she's a book person. Yeah. Call me Jan. Um, that, and then just to continue, I want this federal bill, you know, for me, that's kind of the, the cherry on top. And then it doesn't stop from there because there are so many other crazy stories, yeah. um, within the fertility industry. Like right now I'm 
working on getting serial sperm donors banned from certain countries. Um, but that's, that's a whole other hour topic. Uh, but there's just, there's just a lot. So it's, wow. I have found myself in a completely different place in life that I never thought I would be, but wow. here I am. Well, to every guest in the past and everyone in the future, good luck. This will not be <laughs> topped. Uh, and no offense to Blake, a great, uh, a great guest. Um, the Blakeism is invest in the, uh, someone who wants to learn and someone who doesn't just know, but yeah, this, this is a, yeah, thank you. This was amazing. I'm so grateful for your time and for your friendship and for you being a voice for people that, that need it. Uh, cause that's your gift. And I think you discovered that, which, you know, again, a lot of people would run from it, but you've, you've run to it and you're inspiring people, whether you know it or not. So thank you for being on this and for your friendship and for being such a, um, a committed person to a cause. Well, and thank you for having me on Rogers. Yeah.